Uh, my name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us here today, I'm really, really thrilled that you're here. I'd love to meet you after the service. And there's really one thing that you need to know about us as a church, and it's that we're passionate about seeing people's lives changed by the gospel. We're passionate about seeing people's lives changed by the gospel. That's really the bullseye on the target for us. It's what gets us up every morning. And if you were here last weekend, you know that last Sunday was an incredible Sunday towards that end. Last Sunday, we baptized nine people, and we had 277 people here in our service. Yeah, so those are, those are both kind of records for us. It's the most people we've ever baptized at one time. It's the most people we've ever had join us in a service. And I hope that you're really encouraged by that. I get really encouraged by numbers because numbers represent people. They represent people that God is changing. They represent people whose lives are being changed by the gospel. And so I'm thrilled about that. And the thing that gets me even more excited is that what God did last weekend is not the, is not the ceiling of what he wants to do here in our church, but it's the floor. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor, because throughout history, God has used ordinary people like you and me to do extraordinary things. Throughout history, God has used ordinary people like us to do amazing things, to change the world, and so I'm just full of faith, and I'm full of excitement and encouragement, and I hope you are as well. And this weekend, we're actually starting a new sermon series in the book of Acts, so we're going to cover Acts 6 through 8 over the next couple of weeks, and in the book of Acts, we're going to see God use ordinary people to change the world. So we're calling this series, People Like You, Empowered by Him. People Like You, Empowered by Him. You see, the book of Acts records the explosive growth of the early church from a couple of hundred people in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth with thousands and thousands of people worshiping Christ. And here's what you'll find if you, if you read the book of Acts carefully. God used famous Christians to establish the church, people like, you know, Peter and John, people that you've heard of, but he used ordinary Christians like you and me to grow the church. So God used famous Christians to establish the church, and they certainly played a very important role, people that you've heard of, people that wrote books of the Bible, but God used ordinary people to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem and out into the world. And in this sermon series, as we work through Acts 6 through 8, we're going to get to meet some of those people. We're going to get to meet some of the people that God used to grow the early church. And what we're going to learn is that God wants to do the same thing in and through us today. So if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, because that's where we're going to be today. We walked through Acts chapters 1 through 5 last fall, but let me just kind of catch you up, recap what happened. So Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he entrusted the gospel message to a group of 120 of his disciples. And he said, I'm calling you to go and take this message of salvation to the ends of the earth. And that group of disciples was empowered with incredible faith. And they were endowed with incredible spiritual authority. And so they quickly experienced rapid church growth. And when we come to Acts chapter 6, what we're going to find is that a problem developed because of that growth. So the rapid growth of the church led to a problem that threatened to divide the church and sap it of its spiritual vitality. You see, too often, unfortunately, churches are defined by division and infighting, right? The things that church people fight about can be pretty ridiculous, right? Like one group likes traditional music, the other group likes contemporary music. One church wants to fix the roof, the other group wants to replace the roof, right? Like one church or one group likes blue carpet, the other group likes red carpet, and all of us are like, why would you pick either of those colors for carpet? That's ridiculous, right? But the truth is, maybe you grew up in a church, or maybe your perception of church people is that there's just constantly conflict in church. For some people, maybe this is your story, you've kind of held Christianity at arm's length, 
because maybe you experienced a really toxic church culture growing up, or maybe you just have seen people that are constantly in conflict, and you thought, I don't want anything to do with that. Being a Christian and being in the church seems to be a lot of trouble. Well, here's what we're going to find today in Acts chapter 6. Church problems are not a 21st century phenomenon. Church problems go all the way back to Acts chapter 6 because churches are comprised of people. And any time that you get people together in a group, there's always going to be problems. And in particular, this problem in Acts 6 was caused by church growth. And I think that's really timely for us because as a church, we are growing rapidly. So if you compare our last four Sunday attendances with the same four Sundays last year, we have grown by 39%. 39%, right? And anytime you grow, you have growing pains, right? And growing pains are the best kind of pains to have, right? But they're still painful. And as we continue to grow, we're going to start to encounter some of these growing pains. And not just us generally, but you. You will start to experience some of the pains that come along with a church that's growing. But by looking at this church in Acts chapter 6, we're going to learn how to resolve those problems. We're going to learn how those problems don't have to divide us. They don't have to lead to infighting and some sort of toxic culture. But they're actually an opportunity for God to lead us into greater depths of service and greater heights of health as a church. So what we're going to do is we look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, is we're just going to learn a couple of simple truths about church health, church growth, and church problems. All right? We're going to have four things. So here's number one, if you're taking notes. Number one, church health leads to church growth. Church health leads to church growth. Look at verse 1 with me. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so periodically the author of the book of Acts, which was a, a medical doctor named Luke, will tell us, will kind of check in on the growth of the church, right? So this happens all throughout Acts if you're reading it. And in this particular instance, the number of disciples was increasing, okay? So their, their attendance and worship services was going up. There were more and more kids in the kids' ministry. There were more people getting connected to, you know, Jerusalem Bible study groups and whatnot, okay? That's the idea. So the church is growing. The question is, why? Why was the church growing? And if you've read Acts chapters 1 through 5, you know the answer is that because the church was healthy. So in Acts chapter 1, we're told that this church was led by gifted and qualified leaders, Acts chapter 4 tells us that the relationships within the church were deep, meaningful, and life-giving. That, in fact, there was no one with a financial need in the church because they took care of each other so well. And then Acts chapter 5 tells us that they regularly gathered together for worship like this, but then they also regularly broke into smaller groups to study the Bible and to pray in their homes. So this church wasn't perfect. It certainly had some issues, but by and large, it was healthy. And one of the things that this teaches us is that when a church is healthy, it will grow. Church health leads to church growth. I mean, we sort of know this intuitively, don't we? Like healthy trees grow taller year after year. Healthy puppies become dogs, right? Healthy children grow up to become adults. Imagine you were looking for a company to invest money in, right? And you were trying to find a winner. What would you do? Well, you would look for a company that showed consistent growth, right? You want to see the profits going up and to the right. Now, why is that? Well, intuitively, we just sort of know that health and growth are connected. Now, could there be an organization or a church that was growing even though it was unhealthy? Well, sure. But in general, that's the exception, not the rule. Most of the time, if a church or a company is experiencing growth, it's because there's some form of health going on. You see, from the beginning, we have not sought to be a large church. That You won't find that anywhere in our, our mission statement or in our vision statement or anything. That's not my heart. But what we have sought to be is a healthy church. 
And the truth is, when you are a healthy church, you will most likely experience growth. Because that means God is at work in your midst. You're believing the promises of the scripture. You're digging deep into the gospel. You're repenting of sin. You're inviting your friends and coworkers. And when we're doing that, it creates a culture that people want to be a part of. And so I'm encouraged that we've experienced church growth. Church growth is a good thing. It means that more people are being engaged in our ministry. More people are hearing the good news of the gospel and are having their lives changed. You know, about 18 months ago, we had 50 people in our church. And last weekend, we had over 250, right? I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you don't ever take that for granted because in, in, this is kind of sad, but the vast majority of churches in the United States are either plateaued or declining in their growth. For 23 years of my life, I was a part of shrinking churches. My family growing up would kind of go from one dying church to the next, and it depressed me, honestly. I'm sure there are godly people in those churches. I know that they were very sweet and godly people. But there was sort of this batten down the hatches mentality. It was like, let's just, let's just hold on until the end and try to keep the doors open. I remember the first time that I joined a healthy, vibrant church. It was invigorating. I saw ordinary people believing the promises of God, sharing their faith, going deep in discipleship. And I thought, this is what I want to be a part of. This is what I want to be a part of. And here's the thing. When you look at the church in the book of Acts, here's what you find. That's how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to feel like a movement. If you're part of a healthy church, it doesn't mean you'll always be growing by leaps and, bound numer- leaps and bounds numerically. You might even be in a dying town. So it's possible there could be a healthy church in a dying town that's not growing, but there should be a definite sense of direction. You should feel like we're not just gathering here because this is what you do, but we're gathering here with a purpose, and God has empowered us by his spirit, and we are going somewhere. Right? I am grateful, and I believe that's true of our church. We are not a perfect church by any means, but I do believe that we're a healthy church. And I think that one of the results is that we're a growing church. One of the things we learn, real simply, from verse 1 of this chapter is that church health leads to church growth, which leads us to our second point. Church growth leads to church problems. Okay? Church growth leads to church problems. Look at verse 1 again. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, comma, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there were two types of Jews in the early church. There were Hebrews, which were people who spoke Aramaic. They read the Old Testament in Hebrew and they were shaped by Hebrew culture. That's the Hebrews. And then there were the Hellenists. The Hellenists spoke Greek. They read the Old Testament in Greek and they were shaped by Greek culture. They were both part of the church. They were both Christians, but they were very different culturally, okay? We have this in our church today. Some of you are from Greene County. You shop at Walmart. You drive an F-150, right? Praise God, America, right? Some of you, I just made so many of you mad. Okay, some of you, some of you live in Belmont. You live in the Belmont neighborhood. You shop at Whole Foods and you ride an e-bike to work, right? Like, both are Christians, right? Both are in this church. But if we're just honest with one another, you come from very different cultures, right? Well, that's what was happening in the early church. You had the Hebrews and you had the Hellenists, and they were both part of the local church, but they came from very different cultures. And then a problem developed. You see, the early church had a benevolence ministry where they would distribute food to widows that were in the church who had no family to support them and who couldn't work. And so every day they would distribute food to these women so that they would be provided for. Well, something went wrong. The Hellenist widows, so the Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected in the distribution. Right? They were not getting the amount of food that they needed, and the Hebrew widows were. 
And what happened was they started to complain. They started to murmur. Literally, it's the same word murmur that you see in the Old Testament when the Israelites are walking through the wilderness and they're constantly murmuring at Moses. It's that same word. That same tendency came back up in the people of God. They started to murmur. Now, here's a question. Was this intentional? Were the apostles intentionally neglecting the Hellenist widows? Well, almost all scholars agree that that wasn't the case. So what happened? It was a systems problem, right? As the church grew, they outgrew their systems. Probably in the beginning, the benevolence ministry to the widows was kind of informal and was run by a couple of compassionate church members. But as more and more members joined the church, that informal ministry couldn't keep up, right? Maybe a key leader moved out of town, I don't know, right? But what happened is as the church grew, it outgrew its informal systems. And as the apostles were, man, preaching the gospel and discipling people and standing before the Sanhedrin, it just, it fell through the cracks. They weren't intentionally neglecting the Hellenist widows. It just happened because of church growth. This church growth caused church problems. Now, here's what's really interesting. The Hellenist widows interpreted a systems problem as a personal slight, They interpreted a systems problem as a personal slight. Look at verse 1. It says the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. They didn't just complain that they weren't getting food. What did they do? They complained against another group in the church. They said, oh, this must be intentional. The apostles, they're all Hebrews. They must be intentionally overlooking our widows. You know what they did? They assumed the worst. They assumed the worst. And this, friends, is a classic way that division enters the church. This is a classic way that division enters the church. A systems problem is interpreted as a personal slight, and then people start taking sides. People start talking. People start murmuring in the lobby. They start murmuring in kids' ministry. They start murmuring in groups, and they say, can you believe X, Y, or Z? I mean, I don't mean to complain, but X, Y, or Z? This is a classic way that division enters the church. Rather than assuming the best about the apostles, they assumed the worst. Anytime you experience church growth, your systems are going to be strained and you will experience church problems. We work really hard as a leadership team to try to create systems and processes that make sure that you're cared for well and you're invested in, you're empowered to do ministry, but we can't take care of everything all the time. So one example that comes to mind is at the end of last year, a couple of our missional communities have gotten really big, like 25 or plus people. Maybe you were part of one of those groups. It's very difficult to do the kind of deep, meaningful discipleship we want to do with that many people. I mean, it's possible. It's just very difficult. And so we responded to that earlier this year by planting two new missional communities, praise God. Right? So now we've got groups with a little bit more space. But in that moment, our church growth was causing a church problem. You might have been to one of those groups and felt like, this is overwhelming. I'm an introvert. I can never grow here. Well, that's the same thing that happened in this instance. The Hellenist widows experienced a systems problem, but unfortunately, they interpreted it as a personal slight. So here's the question. When you experience a growing pain, how will you respond? When you experience a growing pain, how will you respond? Will you assume the best or will you assume the worst about the church and about others? Unfortunately, the Hellenists assume the worst. They must be intentionally doing this because we're Greek and they're Hebrew. I knew it. I knew we're second-class citizens here. This will never work because all the apostles are Hebrews. They murmured. They complained. And you know what happens when you murmur and complain is it multiplies on itself. You complain to somebody else, and then they complain, and then this thing that's not really a big deal turns into this massive problem, and churches all over America are divided by this exact kind of thing all the time. Now, what they could have done is the Hellenists could have assumed the best. 
They could have said, man, our widows are not getting enough food. It, it can't be that the apostles are intentionally excluding them. I mean, what do we know about the apostles? They're godly. They walked with Jesus. They've been faithful, humble, repentant men. Let's assume the best about them. Let's assume that this isn't intentional, but they, they just have a lot on their plate. Forgive the pun, right? They have a lot on their plate. And they didn't intend for this to happen, but they're, you know, they're, they're preaching and they're writing scripture and they're discipling people and they're being persecuted by the Sanhedrin and they're being burst out of jail by angels. And they just forgot about the widow program where, you know, it's on the agenda, but it got disturbed this week in the prayer meeting because, you know, the police came in. That is such a different response than how they actually responded. That would have led to a humble pursuit of unity as a church. This is what that would have looked like. The, you know, whoever the leaders of the Hellenist widows were, like the Hellenists in the church, would have gone to the apostles and said, hey, guys, you've got a lot going on. And we're so grateful for you. We're grateful for this church. Our widows aren't getting the food that they need. Can, can we help address the problem? When you assume the best, you build godly unity. When you assume the worst, you create ungodly division. So my question for you is, when you experience growing pains, how will you respond? So what are some of the ones you might experience in our church? Well, I just, I kind of thought about this for a second. So one might be community. So I think most people have a, an intuition that small equals caring and big equals cold. And so the idea is that as the church grows, it becomes less concerned for individual people and more just sort of about the crowd. But here's what I know from personal experience. You can be deeply known and cared for in a large church, and you can be very isolated and lonely in a small church. It has a lot less to do with the size of the church and a lot more to do with the health of the church and how you choose to invest your time, right? So as this church grows, you might feel a little bit disconnected. You might be like, man, I used to know everyone by name, and now there's lots of faces that I don't know. The question is how you respond in that moment. Here's another one, pastoral care, pastoral care. So when churches are really small, the pastors can be very, what I would call sheep-focused, like individually focused. There is a time in our church where I could have coffee with every one of our members every single month. For a lot of you, I not only knew your name, I knew how good or bad you were at Settlers of Catan. It's just true. Like, that's just, when you've only got 30 people, it's like, what else am I going to do? You know, like, that's what you do. And, and there's a sweetness to that season. Like, I'm not trying to downplay that. But as the church grows, it's the job of the pastors to become more flock-focused to ask questions about how can we provide care for the whole church. And one of the ways that we do that as pastors is by equipping our members to provide care for one another. So that might be a missional community group leader. That might be a D group leader. That might just be somebody that you know here that we're encouraging. Hey, encourage one another. The truth is most of the care that you receive within the church should not be coming from the pastors. It should be coming from your peers. Right? Because like Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, we're called to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're called to be humble and loving and gracious and to bear one another's burdens. So pastoral care might be a growing pain that you experience. You might feel like, man, I, I feel like I used to know Josh better. Right? I feel like I used to talk to him more. And hear me, I love being a pastor. I love talking to you. I love having coffee. So it's not like don't ever talk to me. It's just when you've got 250 people, the access is different than when you have 35. So here's the last one. I'll, I'll just call this one preferences. Preferences. And it's important to make a distinction between a preference and a conviction. Okay? You know the difference? So a conviction is something that, that you believe that is rooted in theology. So a conviction would be the Bible is the word of God. You should be at a church that holds your convictions. Right? And if this church ever departed from that conviction, you should depart from this church. But a preference is just how you prefer things to happen, to be done. Right? So you can have preferences about 
worship. You can have preferences about preaching. You can have preferences about groups. I mean, we all have preferences about lots of things. And it's not that preferences are bad. It's just that we have to understand how to interact with our convictions versus our preferences. You should be closed-handed with your convictions and open-handed with your preferences. Closed-handed with your convictions and open-handed with your preferences. Now, unfortunately in America, most Christians flip this. Most Christians think very little about their convictions, and they don't actually think a whole lot about, like, does this church believe what I believe? Are they actually, man, are they following Scripture in the way that I think that they should? But most Christians in America are hyper-focused on their preferences. Like, is, are these the kind of songs that I like to sing? Are these the instruments that I like? Is the volume what I like it to be? Is the, does the preacher preach in a way that I prefer? Is the kids' ministry just what my kids want? Are these groups meeting my needs? And hear me, those are all important things. And you should feel fed and cared for by your church. And I hope you look forward to coming to church every Sunday. And I hope you look forward to being involved in our groups. And I hope your kids drag you out of bed on Sunday morning because they want to go to our kids' ministry. Okay? Like, I hope that's true. But here's the reality. Our convictions are never going to change. Our convictions are going to stay the same. But how we carry out our mission in this community is going to have to flex as we grow. Sometimes we have to change things to be more effective at reaching people with the gospel. If we want to see lives changed by the gospel, we have to continuously ask the question, how can we effectively do that? And that might mean at some point that one of the things that you loved about our church, one of your preferences early on, changes. And the question is, in that moment, how will you respond? Will you say, man, this church is not about me and all my preferences being met. It's about our convictions, and it's about living life on mission and seeing God change this community. Or will you respond and say, well, this church has changed. This church isn't what it was when I started here. The truth is our church is made up of people, and so we're, we're going to be constantly changing. Praise God, we have a gospel and we have convictions that direct us, so we're never going to get widely off course. But things are going to change as we grow and when you experience one of those growing pains, it's going to be painful. I'm not, I hope this doesn't come off as, as belittling. These things are painful. They're, I, I feel that. But the scriptures call us to be close-handed with our convictions and open-handed with our preferences. So, for instance, when, when your MC, when your missional community is a bit overcrowded, here's, here's what I want you to assume. I want you to assume, man, Center Church cares deeply about intentional relationships, and they're working on planting new groups so that I can be involved in deep relationships. Don't assume this church is just about the numbers. They don't care. It's just a crowdsource, right? Assume the best. Don't assume the worst. Resist the temptation, friend, to interpret a systems problem as a personal slight. Church growth always leads to church problems. Here's the third thing that we learned. Number three, church problems are solved by church people. Church problems are solved by church people. This is verses 2 through 6. It says this, And the twelve, that being the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So the apostles responded by saying, We aren't willing to neglect preaching God's word to serve tables. Now, they knew this was a problem, and they believed this was an important ministry. And they are going to deal with this problem head on. They're just not going to deal with it personally. The reason is that it was their responsibility and calling to preach the word of God. God had given them a specific calling to do that ministry above all else. And they couldn't preach the word of God faithfully and run a large benevolence ministry. Have you ever listened to a bad sermon? That's a dangerous question. <laughs> I know I have. I've preached some, right? Why do pastors preach bad sermons, 
right? Like some, sometimes it's like an ability issue. Like they're just, they don't have a spiritual gift of, of preaching or whatever. But more often than not, it's a preparation issue. The pastor is expected to solve so many problems in so many churches and visit everyone that, you know, something's going on and, and get his hands into every single thing that he just doesn't have the time to do sufficient sermon preparation. And so the sermon is bad. The preaching ministry is weak. It's usually not an ability. I, I can tell you, no pastor I've ever met has been like, I can't wait to preach a bad sermon on Sunday. Right? That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to preach great sermons. But if you're so devoted, if, if all these hours of your week and time and emotion is invested in solving all the problems because you're the one person that has to do it, you just don't have time to preach. You see, that's what the apostles recognized. They said, hey, we could get involved and we could solve this problem, but if we do, it's going to drain power out of the preaching ministry. I had a mentor uh, who told me, he said, Josh, the most loving thing you can do for your church is preach your best sermon every Sunday. Because in this setting, I get to encourage and edify and convict and build up almost 200 people at once. He said, the best gift you can give to your people is to preach your best sermon. And so I devote between 15 and 20 hours a week to my sermon. And in order to do that, I have to say no to some really good things. So like, for instance, I very rarely take morning meetings. I very rarely meet people for breakfast or for coffee. And I know that's sometimes irritating, right? Because you've got jobs and stuff. But I'm most creative in the morning. I do my best sermon preparation in the morning. And so I just feel like for the sake of our whole church, I need to protect that space, right? That is what the apostles were doing in this situation. They said, hey, if we handle, if we handle this ministry, we're going to be neglecting our primary responsibility, which is to preach God's word. But they do have a plan for handling it. Look at verse 3. So we're not going to do it. They say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Icanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So rather than solving this problem, the apostles called on the church to solve this problem. Now this was a significant problem. It's in the Bible, right? Like if, this, if your problem gets recorded in the Bible, it's a big deal. But the people who solved this problem were not the famous Christians. It was the ordinary ones. A very significant problem that's threatening the entire spiritual vitality of the church wasn't solved by Peter and James and John. It was solved by a bunch of people they were pretty ordinary. Of the seven men that were chosen to address this issue, five of them are never mentioned in Scripture again. Now, why is that? Because they're just ordinary people. They're just like you and me. They weren't apostles. They were church people. And the truth is, church people solve church problems. Now, why seven? That's kind of an interesting question. We don't know exactly, but in most Jewish towns of the day, there was a council of seven men that resolved conflicts and managed needs. So it seems like they just said, hey, this is a conflict, this is a need, let's pick seven people to handle this. So what does this mean for us today? Well, like, what does this mean for you sitting here? here? Here's what it is. God has called and empowered you to solve problems in your church. God has called you to solve problems in your church. Every single one of us should consider ourselves church problem solvers. CPS. Church problems solvers. We're called to be a servant who solves problems rather than a skeptic who just points them out. 
You see, we are all naturally bent to being skeptical. That's me. Our natural inclination is to recognize and to point out problems, but we often stop short. But what God is inviting us to become are servants who not only recognize problems, but who get our hands dirty to solve those problems. To not just point them out, but to be a part of solving them. Maybe you're passionate about our church becoming more intergenerational, and that's amazing. Start intentionally building relationships with people who are older or younger than you. Maybe you're really passionate and concerned about our church growing in diversity. Praise God. Start building relationships in our community with people that are different than you. Maybe you want our church to be defined by prayerfulness. Amen. Join our prayer ministry. Start recruiting people to pray with you on Sunday mornings. Uh, There's a member of my missional community that's actually done this really, really well. So he just has a huge burden for marginalized people in our community. And so he came to me and he said, Josh, I would love for our group to start working with a food bank. And so I said, great. So I I gave him some parameters, and I said, go for it. So he reached out to a local food bank, Loaves and Fish, here in town. He coordinated the whole thing with the director, and now our group is going to be serving there together once a month. Right? That was a member of our church who said, hey, I see something that I'd like for us to be doing. And he came to me, and he said, hey, I want to lead in this. I see a problem that that, that needs to be solved, and I want to solve that problem. That is an excellent picture of what it looks like for church people to solve church problems. Here's a really interesting note. Of the seven names, of the seven men, the seven names chosen to solve this problem, all of them are Greek names. So Greek people solved a Greek problem. So what that means is that if you are experiencing a problem that you're at this church, consider yourself commissioned to solve it. Right? Greek people solve Greek problems. So if you're feeling like your MC isn't deep, deeply connected relationally, you be the leader. Start organizing hikes. Start organizing, you know, nights out. Start organizing play dates at the park. If you feel like, man, you know, on Sunday morning, like, people just come in and they don't talk. It's, like, too cold in here. Man, go talk to people. Get your friends to go. You don't have to have an official ministry to solve problems in our church. There are plenty of problems to solve, okay? If you're experiencing a growing pain, you have been commissioned to help solve that growing pain. Greek people solved a Greek problem. And as you start working on problems, issues, growing pains in our church, do so in humility and submission to the church's leadership. Right? Look, look back at verse 6. It says this. These, so these seven men, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So what was that all about? Well, that was the apostles signing off on these seven men. So the idea of laying hands on is bestowing authority. So the apostles had unique spiritual authority from God, and they saw these seven men, and they said, yes, this is a good plan. We're bestowing our authority on them. Now go and fix the problem. You see, one of the responsibilities of church leaders is to keep the whole picture in mind. And what that means is sometimes we have to devote more energy and time and resources to one area than we can to another for a certain season. And if you're really passionate about an area that we're not currently focusing a ton of time and resources on, that can be really hard. Right? There can be that temptation to be like, well, this church doesn't care about X, Y, Z. But that, again, is an opportunity to assume the best. And to say, no, I think this church does care about that, but I trust our pastors, I trust our leaders, and so it's an opportunity for you to practice godly submission and to be prayerful. And you can keep bringing it up, just don't be too annoyed about it. Right? right? As you solve problems, do so in godly submission to the leadership that God has placed over his church. Here's an incredible thought. Just, just think, let this settle for a second. Jesus is passionate about the church. The scriptures say that the church is the, is the bride of Christ. 
Think about that image. Jesus cares about the church like a husband cares about his newlywed bride. Jesus wants the church to thrive. Jesus wants the church to be healthy. Jesus wants to protect the church. And here's the amazing thought. Jesus has given you the opportunity, responsibility, and privilege of cultivating health in his bride. Jesus has called you to help his bride be healthy. He's given you the calling and he's empowered you with the spiritual gifts to do it. Some of you have amazing spiritual gifts that build up our church. Some of you are just prayer warriors. Man, that is your spiritual gift. We need that. Some of you are great connectors. You're good at making new people feel welcome. We need that. Some of you are like my wife who are excellent at listening and understanding people's emotions and counseling them. We need that. Some of you are excellent and are passionate and burdened at reaching out to non-Christians around you. We need you to infuse that into our church and into our groups. Friends, the truth is the bride of Christ rises and falls on your involvement. That is a weighty and amazing privilege that you and I have been commissioned to work for the health of Jesus' bride. You see, church people solve church problems. Here's the last thing that we learn. Number four, when church problems are solved, church health is the result. When church problems are solved, church health is the result. It's kind of a whole cycle. Look at verse seven. After this was solved, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. So after this problem was solved, more lives were changed by the gospel. More lives were changed by the gospel. Now, why is that? Well, number one, because this issue was dealt with, right? The widows were now being cared for in a compassionate way. And many commentators believe that the reason that so many priests came to repent, believe in Jesus, is because they saw these widows who they knew being cared for so well. So one reason the church continues to grow and be healthy is because this problem is being dealt with. The other reason is the apostles could continue to devote themselves to preaching. So the word is being preached, the gospel being proclaimed, and and widows are being cared for, and that's a testimony to the priests, and the gospel being proclaimed is a testimony to the people in the church, and the result is that the church continues to be healthy and continues to grow. And here's what's interesting, and I think really thrilling. Um, the, The Greek tense of those words increase and multiply, is in the imperfect tense. All right, bear with me, nerd moment, okay? That denotes continual action. So what you could write is the word of God continued increasing and the number of disciples continued multiplying. So here's the big idea. When church people step up to solve church problems, multiplication is the result. When church people step up to solve church problems, the health And the growth of the church just goes on and on and on and on and on. It's not a one-time deal. It's a continually increasing action. And that gets me really excited. Because it means, friends, that God's desire for you in this church is not that we would just come and sit and soak on Sunday morning, but we would be sent out to make a difference in the world. That God doesn't just have us here in Charlottesville to gather on Sundays and maybe in a group on Tuesday night, but he has us here to see this community transformed. And he wants to work through us to take the gospel to people all over the world who have never heard it. This summer, we have a team of people going to Nicaragua and a team of people going to Bhopal, India to go and take the gospel to people who have either never heard it or haven't heard it in a very long time. 
Now imagine what would happen if our church continues to be healthy because we all continue to solve problems and we continue to grow. What's going to happen? We're going to continue to multiply those trips. And we're going to continue to multiply groups here in our city. And we're going to continue to multiply our efforts at reaching the marginalized and caring for people that are suffering and having the gospel go out to people who have never heard it. That gets me excited. That is God's vision for his church. His vision for his church is not that we would sit here and fight about preferences. But that we would submit our preferences to the lordship of Jesus and say, Jesus, here I am, send me. This church is not about me, I'm about serving this church. Because the the point of the scriptures is not me, the point of the scriptures is Jesus Christ and his bride. Imagine what kind of church we could build if we all came together with that attitude. If we all came together and said, hey, it's not about me. I'm not here as a spectator. I'm not here to point out problems. I'm here as a servant. I'm here to solve problems. I'm here to be actively involved in the mission of this church. Do you know what Satan laughs at? Mega churches full of spectators. He just doesn't care. I don't care how many thousands of people that you have gathering on a Sunday morning. If everybody's just sitting around not doing anything, Satan's like, cool, great. I know where they'll be on, you know, twice a month on Sunday. But do you know what makes Satan tremble? Churches full of servants. Because throughout history, God has changed the world when ordinary people like you and me have come together and said, it's not about me, it's about the gospel, and I'm all in on this. Friends, God has empowered you to serve his church. That is a beautiful and amazing privilege. And God changes the world through groups like us. That's what he did in Acts chapter 6. That's what he's done all throughout church history. That's what he's done throughout American church history. And that's what he wants to do today. He wants to change his community. He wants to change you. And he wants to change the world to ordinary people. So the question that we're left with, that we have to wrestle with, I think, is have I been living like a skeptic or a servant? Honestly, over the last three months, have you been more of a spectator, right, kind of on the, on the fringes, not really getting that involved, or have you been a servant? Have you been actively engaged in the mission of the church? The truth is we all gravitate towards skepticism. We all gravitate towards being a spectator, myself included. Why is that? We have busy lives, right? Like you, you, have, a, you have a career or you're in school, right? You have a, a social life. Maybe you have kids. If so, you no longer have a social life, but you're still busy, right? And we just, we get busy and we get tired and church sort of just falls down to like that fourth or fifth category that we're like, ah, man, I really need to, I need to, I need to get more involved there, but I just can't. I don't have the time right now. I don't have the time to, to get into a missional community. I don't, have a, I don't have the time to serve. I don't have the resources right now to give, right? It just kind of falls to the wayside. And unfortunately, when that happens, gosh, and that happens all over the country, we miss out on what God has for us. We miss out on the incredible life-changing mission that God has for us. So how do we change? How do we leave behind the posture of skepticism, the posture of being a spectator, and how do we become servants? How do we take up the mantle of service? Well, by considering the posture of Jesus. By considering the posture of Jesus. You see, you and I had a great problem. We were separated from God by our sin. 
And Jesus didn't just point out that problem as a skeptic. He got his hands dirty. In fact, he got his hands nailed open to solve it. You see, friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, it is because of a suffering servant. If you are a Christian here this morning, it is not because of your moral record. It is not because of your church attendance. It is not because of your tithing. It is because Jesus Christ left heaven and he came to earth and he suffered as a servant for your salvation. Friends, you're reconciled to God because Jesus was forsaken by God. You are cleansed of your sin because Jesus became sin. You have life because he experienced death. That is the core message of the scriptures, that Jesus traded places with you. And as you believe that message, as that message takes deep root in your heart, you cannot help but want to serve other people. As you look at what Jesus has done for your salvation, at the way he has laid down his life and his preferences and his power and his comfort so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be adopted, so that you could have new life, so that you could have a bright future, you'll say, Lord, here I am, send me. You'll no longer think of church life and the Christian life as what you have to do. You will think of church life and the Christian life as what you get to do. And a church full of people like that is dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. A church full of people who are transformed by the gospel and who daily and weekly remember it and are affected by it at the heart level, that kind of church doesn't have to be massively gifted. They don't have to have a ton of resources, but they will change the world. Saved people serve people. That's how we say it around here. Saved people serve people. Imagine what kind of church we could build if we all live that way. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for serving me. Thank you for serving us. That because of your suffering service, we're forgiven. And as we sang just a few minutes ago, in your freedom, we are free. Father, I pray for those here this morning that are feeling convicted. Father, I pray that they would run to you where there is forgiveness and grace. I, feel for, I pray for those, Lord, who are feeling discouraged, that you would build them up and you would encourage them through this word that no matter how ordinary they feel, God, you want to work through them to do amazing things. And God, I pray for those here today who are listening to this message, who are listening to this gospel truth, and who are acknowledging that has not changed me. I maybe know that intellectually, or I maybe have gone to church for a long time, but I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've never been transformed by that message. And I pray that today or this week or next week, they would do that. That, Lord Jesus, they would get off the throne of their life, and they'd ask you to come in as their Lord and Savior. And they'd be transformed into servants who change the world. Jesus, give us faith to trust you when it's hard. Give us energy to persist and to bear with one another in love and to be light and to be salt in our community. All for the sake of your name and glory. We love you. We pray this in your name.